Here we go. So we started a series on grace last week, and um, we're going through grace in the pastoral epistle. So five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the word grace is mentioned. Now, if you've got an electronic device with a Bible on it, it will come up a lot more times than that. That's because in the introduction and in the farewell, the word comes up. But where Paul, who wrote the letters, teaches about grace in his letters, it's five times. So we're going to go today to 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 1. Now, just to say a little bit about the letter of 2 Timothy, people um, are pretty clear in believing that this is the last um, epistle we have that the Apostle Paul wrote, that he was writing it from a Roman prison, and he's coming towards the end of his life to the extent that he says this towards the end of the letter. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What an amazing thing to be able to say, look back while you're still here and say, I've fought the fight and I've run the race. He had a real sense of completion that he'd done what God had called him to do. But it's the last letter, that we recorded letter that we have that he wrote, and we're going to be preaching from this letter today. The context of today's passage is, is about Paul suffering, and as a result of his suffering, the, 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 the high possibility of being ashamed. You see, I don't know if you know this if you're a Christian, but the, the, the leaders of our movement, those who came directly after Jesus, and obviously Jesus himself, pretty much all died shameful deaths, were killed uh, mur- uh, martyred, murdered. Uh, all, all of the original um, 12 apostles, it seems, did time. All, they would, all have had criminal records um, for the faith. And so right from the beginning, from the very roots of Christianity, it wasn't, it wasn't a respectable movement at all, but very, very anointed by God. And it's important that we bear that in mind as we grow, that we don't pursue respectability, but that we pursue the anointing of God. Um, we don't deliberately want to cause trouble or you know, controversy, of course not. But we mustn't just pursue respectability. We must pursue God. Uh, and whatever comes, comes. But we've got to pursue him. So we're gonna, th- that's the context of the passage I'm going to read. Just to say, those of you who don't know, um, Hazia and Lena, it's their last Sunday with us this Sunday before, um, before they return to their home nation of Iraq, uh, Kurdistan in Iraq, where they're going to go and... Um, live the Christian life there for the, for, the, for, the, for, the, well, for the rest of their life as far as we know. Um, and we're gonna, they're going to be sharing a little bit at the end of this sermon. That's why we uh, mix the order up a bit. They're going to share directly after this sermon. And then uh, we're going to pray for them. And I'm going to just be referring to them um, throughout this sermon. I'm going to help us to view what they're about to do in light of this passage I'm going to preach. So that's, we wouldn't normally be like that, but I felt it's appropriate to do that. So um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Paul's just told Timothy that he's not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And then he says, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hallelujah. Lord, what a mighty passage. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring Paul to write this. We pray you would bring it to life in our souls as we look at it today. We pray for the inspiration of you deep in our souls. Lord, thank you for that we've not been given a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love and sound mind through this gospel. So we can face whatever comes our way because of this amazing gospel. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to just go through some of the phrases that Paul uses and dig into them and show us the wonder of what Paul is talking about here. He says, he says to Timothy, listen, don't be ashamed about Jesus and don't be ashamed of me. You see, to, to know someone in prison can be a shameful thing. To have a relative or a friend who's doing time can be shameful. You can think, oh gosh, I hope no one finds out. What will people think? It has shame around it. Paul says, don't be ashamed because of why I'm imprisoned. Don't be ashamed. And don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. And you know, we can be intimidated by what might happen to us. Those of us who are believers, if we talk about Jesus, what might happen to us? What might people say? How might we be perceived? And the potential shame of it can lock us up. It can close us down. And we just think, I don't really want to face that. Paul says to Timothy, listen, I'm paying the price for, for being public about Jesus. Follow me. Don't be ashamed. Let's, let's look shame in the face and not, not submit to it. Do not be ashamed of me or the gospel, is what he says. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What an incredible thing. Paul doesn't say, do all you can to shirk hardship. He says, no, share with me in it and let's do it by the power of God. Now the word power in, in the original language is talking about the ability to do what you cannot normally do. It's not necessarily explosive or dramatic, it may be, but the main idea is this, is that when God gives us his power, we can do things we couldn't do before. You can look shame in the face and say, I'm not going to come under you. You can face the prospect that you might have to suffer in some way for the gospel and not shrink back, but say, I think I can do this. Why? It's power. You think, well, how does his power come? Well, it's through the gospel. Let's read on. Let's see what he says. He says, God saved us and called us. Now, these two words, saved and called, it's a bit like, it's a, bit, it's a beautiful thing that comes together because saving is like, it's, it's rescue. We, we've been singing songs, haven't we? We've been singing rescue songs today. I love singing rescue songs. I love hearing scriptures about being pulled out of the miry clay and being set on a rock because it's like, yes, our hearts, our hearts cry out, yes, I've been saved. I've been saved from that and I've been saved to and into this. I've been saved from darkness hidden, shameful things I was trapped in, into light where I can live now with a clear conscience. That's salvation. That's powerful. That's powerful. I've been saved from crippling fears. What will people think of me? To be able to live and just be who I am in God. That's power. There's real power in salvation. You're brought out of something and you're brought into something. You're delivered and you're established in a new way. But it's not just salvation, it's calling. There's something very personal about calling. I love the story of Zacchaeus in the, in the Gospel of Luke. He's this short guy, he, he wants to find out about Jesus. He can't see through the crowds, climbs a tree. Jesus is walking by. You know when someone's walking by and the crowds are there, you just think, wow, they must be really amazing. You know, when, when crowds gather, you think, that person must be really special. So here comes the special one. 
And then he stops under the tree. He looks up at this little short guy who couldn't even, couldn't even get a view, who everyone hates. And he says, I'm coming to your house for tea. That's calling. That's calling. It's when Jesus looks at you in your shame, in your unimpressiveness, and he says, I'm coming to your house for tea. I want to know you. And he, and, and he calls him by name. He calls us by name. There's this wonder, this, the gospel, when we understand Christ, we experience the power of salvation and the personal draw of calling. It's like, I've been called by name. It's not a job lot. There's a lot of us, but it's not a job lot. Everyone in here who knows the Lord, you've been called by name. It's not just a random thing. Oh, okay, well, fine. Well, you were close. I saved that person. You were nearby and you kind of spilled over and got you. No, no, no. As people often say, God has no grandchildren. Okay? He, 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 he calls and he adopts personally and he pours his spirit out into that person. It's calling. He's saved us and he's called us. And then Paul says this. this he says, to a holy calling, not because, but because. Now we get to the motives of why God saves and calls us. Now this is really important because you see the motives of the person are the deepest thing. Some people, they, they don't look that impressive, to be honest. They're a bit embarrassing at times, a bit clumsy at times, a bit easy to misunderstand. And yet actually what's going on in their heart is quite pure. Other people really look the part. And people find them attractive and are drawn to them and they're very popular on social media and other things. But actually what's driving them is really pretty ugly, pretty toxic. You see, you can look a certain way, but what's really going on beneath the surface, only God knows. And so here we get into the depths of why God's motives, why has God saved us and called us in Jesus? Why does God save us? This is incredible. This is more than just the fact that he does. Why? What is driving him? What is at God's heart when he comes into our lives and saves us? This is deep. This is deep. When you get into motives, the unseen reasons why we do things, we're into some really deep spiritual stuff there. And Paul says, well, first is, here's what it's not. Sometimes when you say what it's not, it really clarifies what it is. He says, it's not because of your works. There's this myth that's been going on for thousands of years. And here's the myth. God blesses people that, that, that do good. Now, you might think, well, surely there's nothing wrong with that idea. The problem is, is that we don't do good. So it's not like there's anything wrong with, with, with the idea, God bless people who do good. But the Bible says there's no one who does do good. We've all, we're all like sheep gone astray. And so actually, it is a real pro- if that's what you believe, that's a problem. You, you're in, <laughs> if that's what you believe, you're in a bit of trouble. Because, okay, so God blesses those who do good. All right, well, go on then. Be good enough for God to bless. Be good enough for God to say, wow, look at you. I've really got to bless you. See, that, that's not going to happen. And so that's not how it works. Sometimes it's wrong, but we're wrong. So it doesn't work like that. Paul says, God doesn't, God doesn't save and call because of your works. We've got, to, we've got to break that myth. We've got to break that myth. That, because what that myth leads to, it leads to pride, it leads to self-righteousness. Because we're so, we're so broken and messed up. If we embrace that idea, we begin thinking there's something special about us. We start looking down on other people. No, no, no. We, he did not save us because of our works. Amen? Amen? Please, please. I mean, oh, golly, please hear this. Please hear this because it's toxic. It's a toxic idea when people get into this and you end up with clubs called churches. I'm not sure they're churches anymore. I think they're just clubs full of self-righteous people who just go and pat each other on the back because aren't they great and not like everyone else. 
And I, th- I think it's a stench in God's nostrils. I think it makes him feel sick. I think he hates it. I think it utterly insults the work of Jesus on the cross. I think it's just horrible. We don't want to be that. He's not saved us because of our works. Okay, right. So we know, we know. Okay. All right. Well, what was it? Why? Here's why. Two things. Because of his own purpose and grace. So firstly, his own purpose. God has got a purpose. If I say anything today, you've got objections to. The second half of the sermon is answering objections. So hold tight. Okay. God saves us because of his own purpose. One of the favorite verses of Christians is Romans 8 verse 28, which says God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God has got a purpose for the universe, for creation, for your life. And when he saves you, it's for his purpose. We benefit. We get to stand here and say, I'm forgiven. My conscience is clean. It's wonderful. But actually, beyond that, God's saying, no, no, I've caught you up into my purpose. You are benefiting. You're benefiting with forgiveness of sins. You've been adopted into my family. You're now under my love forever. Yeah, but you know what? Actually, I've caught you up into what I am doing in creation for eternity. I've got a purpose for you in that. It's incredible. That God has a purpose for you in his eternal plan. He's a very intentional, very purposeful God. He's happy for us to sit and rest and wait. He's not driving us. He's not in that way. But he's very, very purposeful. Like a potter with the clay, he's, he's working, working to get the shape right. Work, work, he's work, you know, God is working on you if you belong to him. Do you know that? Sometimes you feel it. Sometimes it's a bit like, oh, you know those massages you get? That are, they're good for you, apparently, but they hurt a bit. Sometimes it's someone in the room that does those, but I'm not going to name any names. But um, it's a bit like that sometimes. You think, oh, man, you think, oh, Lord, why that? And he's like, well, do you know what? There's a real knobble there. And like, we let that knobble grow. The vase isn't going to look as beautiful as it should. So it's like, oh man, can hurt. But it's him fashioning something beautiful. Why? Because he's got purpose for you. He's got loving, loving purpose. It's wonderful, isn't it? Loving purpose. There's something about purpose that speaks of love. If I look at someone and say, yeah, kind of, you know, do what you want. There's something slightly unloving about that. You want to release people, but if in your heart you want them to do as well as they can, there's love in there, isn't there? And that's the loving purpose of God. He says, I've got hold of you and I'm going to restore my image in you and I'm going, to, I'm going to bring such beauty to you. Just trust me. Just trust me. So it's his purpose. And then we get this formidable line. And, so that's motive number one. He wants to draw you into his purpose. And his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Literally, before times eternal. He gave you his grace before time's eternal. We're going to get into some deep stuff today. Before time's eternal, that's going to take some digging around in. So there's something very narrow about this grace. It's given to you in Christ Jesus. You want to know the grace of God? It's in Christ. And only in Christ. Only in Christ. God has... God has poured all of his salvation purpose into his son, Jesus Christ. And so in order to enjoy the grace, the favor, the mercy, the love of God, it's in Christ. Very narrow, and yet it's huge, given to you before time's eternal. Whoa! So as you, as you dare to trust in Christ and Christ alone, this, this narrow path, as Jesus calls it, you are brought into such breadth, such depth, such height, such wonders of dimensions you never even imagined. 
So it's this narrowness and this hugeness. Remember last week we looked at grace, we said everyone's got a past. Do you remember that? Today I'm saying this. You've got a past before your past. Okay? You've got a past before your past, and here's what happened. God marked you out in love to know him and be saved. If you're in Christ, before times eternal, you were marked out by God. You were known then. You were chosen then. You were delighted in from eternity. You came at the right time to fit your part in the purpose of God. That's what the Bible teaches. You have a glorious past. No matter how dark you would say your past is, I want to tell you before that, you've got a glorious past. You've got a glorious past. Your past is bathed in love. Do you know that? Your past, in time, before times eternal, is bathed in the love of God. This is extraordinary stuff. It's fatherly, fatherly love. Tender, protective, intentional, purposeful, fatherly love. That is your story. If you know Christ, that is your story. That's what Paul's teaching here. And he goes on, he says, well, it's now been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So he's saying it's now in time been manifested. This baby born, this Jesus born, and, and through his abolishing of death by taking on death at the cross and rising from the dead, he's dealt with that. He's blown out death and darkness and he's brought life and immortality to light. We've seen it now in time and space. Jesus has done it, but it was purposed before time's eternal. It's not plan B. It's not, oh, Israel hasn't worked. What should we do? No, before times eternal, grace was given you in Christ. Before times eternal, the plan was set. That's what the Bible teaches. This is what Paul is teaching here. I'm just telling you what he's saying. I'm just letting it out of his cage. I'm just letting it run. I'm not adding to it, really. I'm just saying this is what it is. Objections. Objection, Your Honor. If you're saying that Certain people are chosen in this way and they know Christ. What's that saying about everyone else? The killer question. The killer question. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle it head on. You right with that? Yeah. This idea of God choosing people before time began is always used for the comfort of the saints. It's always used to comfort believers. It's never used to speculate who's chosen and who isn't. In fact, we don't even know if it works that way. We don't know how this thing works. It's an absolute mystery. But what we do know is this. You see, we're not into speculation here. We're into revelation. Okay? We don't spend time speculating on ideas because none of us are really that clever. And even if we were, we'd get it wrong. This is revelation and we go with revelation. The Bible says that the secret things belong to God. The things revealed belong to us so we can fear him and obey him. Okay? There's some things that have been revealed and some things that are still hidden. We don't mess around with hidden stuff. Whenever the Bible talks about those who don't know Jesus, they use, it uses words like this. All, whosoever... Jesus said, whoever will come to me, I will not turn away. The Bible says it's God's will that none should perish, but all come to salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. Anyway, how do you hold that with that? No idea. You want to grow into spiritual maturity, you've got to learn to live with tension. God gives us enough revelation so that we grow healthily. You start ignoring certain things because you don't know quite how it works. You end up growing in a strange sideways shape. Say, so, no, no, the Bible reveals these things. It is burning in God's heart to save the whole of his creation. We absolutely believe that. We also believe that when someone gets saved, God has marked them out. God has drawn them. 
See, some of you are sitting here and you maybe you're thinking, but you know, I was desperate for God and then he saved me. So maybe, maybe that's what was, maybe, you know, kind of like it's because I was desperate for God. I tell you what, there are people in this room that are Christians that were not desperate for God. I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I knew the gospel. I consciously rejected it. Consciously rejected it. I said no, aged 15. My youth leader gave me the choice. Darn those youth leaders. I said, no, I don't do it. When you do that, you draw a line in the sand. And that left me in a very vulnerable place spiritually. Two and a half years later, Jesus had mercy on me and saved my soul. I wasn't interested. I wasn't threatened by it. I wasn't attracted to it. I wasn't bothered by it. I was making jokes about it. And then he saved me. He marked me out in love before time eternal. That's why I'm still here doing this. So we don't, we don't speculate. We don't know how these things work. It's mysterious, but we're peaceful about it. And actually, this idea that God, God, is, God is marking people out should motivate us to mission. Shouldn't make us think, oh, well, you know, what's the point? Should motivate us. This is Paul who taught this was the most prolific missionary you will ever know. And listen to, he's, he's in a city called Corinth and he's scared because it's threatening. And Jesus appears to him at night and Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. We believe Jesus is saying, yeah, look, there's people here that, are, that I'm working on. I'm drawing by my spirit. They are on their way to me. I've many here. Keep speaking at all costs. Don't go quiet. But I will say this. I will say this. In Romans chapter 9, Paul does ask the question, what if, he says, what if God did make some vessels for noble use and some for common use? What if he did? What, this idea that we'll go, does that mean that? Paul says, what if? He asked the question, he dares to go there, he asked the question. And we're all peering over the edge. And his answer is, who are you, oh man? To answer back to God and tell him what he should make and what he should do. Okay. <laughs> the answer who are you are man since when did you know so much about this that and the other since when did you know how to orchestrate the universe since when did you know how to make everything work together you barely keep your whole own life together he says stop stop thinking you know everything you know god has absolute freedom to do whatever he likes and i trust him will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right yes he will but he is god i don't get to legislate who he is and who isn't and what he does and what he doesn't but I see enough of the cross to know I can trust this God. He's given up his one and only son for my sin. He took my sin in his body. I can trust him absolutely. So I'm not going to hold him captive to my opinions, my perspectives and all, everything that I know so well. I'm going to bow the knee and serve him and trust him. I see enough in creation and enough in the gospel to know he is incredible. He is awesome. And I love him. Amen. So... Hazel and Lena live with, this, live with this incredible heartbeat of God to see all the nations come to Christ, to see everyone saved. And, and so there's this message, Hazel and Lena, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. Go for it. Go for it. Be galvanized by this wonderful idea that God has already gone before you and is at work in many people's lives. Second objection. Well, look, hold on a minute. And this might not be for all of us, but it might be for some of us. Hold on a minute. You say, hold on, hold on, whoa, whoa. He saved me before time's eternal. Okay, great. Why did, he, why did he let me have this period of life before I knew him where I made so many mistakes? 
mess things up, hurt other people. Why did he allow that? This is another mysterious thing that I don't fully understand, but I can say some things about that are biblical. God does honor human choice. Somehow within all of this, God does honor human choice. There came a point where I said, Jesus totally ambushed me. I didn't want to become a Christian. But you know what? There came a point where I said, Jesus, I'm all yours. I chose him. How does he do that? I don't know. I don't know how he does that. It's incredible. It's a miracle. But he works on your heart. But he does honor your choice. He does honor your choice. Secondly, this thing, this mysterious thing of prayer. Don't ask me how, but prayer really matters in this whole thing of salvation. Intercession and prayer, praying for people to come to know Christ, is vital in the action of God saving people. It really is. And what I do know is this. When you come to know Jesus, everything that went on before, he redeems. And he uses for his glory. Everything that went on. I look at my life. I've got some pretty, I've got some pretty sad memories of life before Jesus. Things you think, why, Lord? Why? Things, you know, they can, things that, yeah, you've, all got, you've all got things. You think, why, Lord? Or th- situations we are born into that seem so broken, so messed up. You think, why, Lord? I don't know the answer, but I know two things. I know number one, I'm able to relate to certain people, weep with them when they weep, understand what they've gone through because of what I've been through. Sometimes even the, the sinful things I did, I know how to relate got a straight ping pong. Well, I know how to relate to people that have done the most idiotic, shameful, stupid things. And I say, can Jesus ever change me? I look at me and I say, yes, they can, because he's changed me. Yes. God uses it powerfully in our testimonies. The other thing is this. Jesus said this. Those who are forgiven much love much. Now, don't ask me how he works out when's the best moment. But those who are forgiven much love much. When you know what you've been washed of, and forgiven of. You know what? You just think, Jesus, you are incredible. You are mighty. You are awesome. I love you. I shouldn't be here singing. I shouldn't be. I should not. I should not be here singing, praising you, knowing your purpose in my life, seeing you unfold your plan. I shouldn't be doing that. I should be lost because that's what I chose. I should be wandering around trying to figure it out, trying to be a self-made man and messing it all up because that's what I chose. But you saved me. And you wash me and clean me. And I love you, Jesus. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Other thing people say, well, if Jesus has already decided what he's done from before time's eternal, what's the point in praying and what's the point in sharing the gospel? Why? What's the point? Well, imagine if I was a farmer. Take some imagination, but imagine. And I said to you, I've got this plan for an amazing harvest. I had all this seed already in bags. Bags of seed. I said, I'm going to have an amazing harvest. And they said, what's the plan? What do you mean, what's the plan? Where's your field? Where are you going to sow it? Have you got the machines to do the harvesting? And I was like, well, I haven't got any of that. I just want to have a harvest. You say, you're crazy. You're crazy. God's plan is for a harvest. But he's chosen certain means to get that harvest, prayer and evangelism. That's the work. That That is the work through which he will work out his plan for a harvest. It's really important you understand that. It's not just something, oh, we've prayed yet, we've prayed because God says we better pray, we've prayed. No, 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 no. How the harvest is actually harvested, how people actually come to know him is through prayer and evangelism. Which is why we, there is an obligation, a godly, uh, burning obligation on us to share the faith and to pray for people. There is, this is serious stuff. We, are, we really are in the harvest field. We are harvest, if you're a Christian, you're a harvester. 
Okay? Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to thrust workers into the harvest. That's what you guys are doing. Thrusting you in. But we're not thrusting in saying, go for it, guys. We're saying, hey, we're doing the same thing in London that you're doing where you're going. We're all in the harvest together. Why? Because that is the way God has ordained that his harvest will come. Through the prayer and evangelism of his people. This, this is, now, don't let this crush you, but do let it sit on your shoulders as responsibility. That's, it's important that we spiritually grow and are able to say, I, can, I, feel, I feel in God, I can shoulder this. I want to learn how to pray. I want to learn how to really pray for souls and see them saved. I want to learn how to confidently share my story and not be ashamed, not be, not be fearful, but learn how to grow in boldness. See, it's an adventure we're on in God. And that's how he works out his purposes. Fourth and final objection, isn't this all a bit fanciful? Isn't this all a bit fanciful? This idea of some great story that's happened from before times eternal. When I just go through everyday life, it just feels really random. It just doesn't feel like this. Well, let me just help you with this for a moment. You know, I want to read to you about the three major philosophical epochs. That's, that's how I roll. And uh, we've got pre-modernism, modernism and post-modernism. Now, pre-modernism is a, it's basically about a, a way of understanding life. This is how most people thought up to 1650, up to the 1650s, right? The basic idea of the pre-modern period, an understanding of knowledge, was based upon revealed knowledge from authoritative sources. In pre-modern times, it was believed that ultimate truth could be known, and the way to this knowledge is through direct revelation. This direct revelation was generally assumed to come from God, or a God, so most people thought. How do we really know the answer to things, the ultimate truth? Well, it's by revelation from God. And the sources of authority were the church, who were seen as the holders and interpreters of revealed knowledge. So everyone went to the priest and tell us how life works. Then from the 16... Obviously, there's, you know, these things happen gradually, but people try and draw lines. So roughly between the 1650s and 1950s, it becomes modernism. So from pre-modernism to modernism. Two new approaches to knowing, understanding our universe and life became dominant in the modern period. The first was empiricism, which is knowing through the senses, which gradually developed into scientific empiricism or modern science with the development of modernist methodology. So you've got modern science and understanding through what we can discover through our senses. And the second approach of this period was reason or logic. Often science and reason were collaboratively or in conjunction with each other. So it moves to modernism thinking, which is about reason and understanding with our senses, what we can discover with our senses, science and reason. From the 1950s to the current times, we're now in postmodernism. Postmodernism brought with it a questioning of the previous approaches to knowing. Instead of relying on one approach to knowing, they advocate for a pluralism which utilises multiple ways of knowing. This can include the pre-modern ways, revelation, Modern ways, science and reason, along with many other ways of knowing, such as intuition, just relational, spiritual. The sources of authority for the postmodern is that they approach to seek to deconstruct previous authority sources and power because power is distrusted and try and set up a less hierarchical approach in which authority sources are not relied upon. So here's what I'm saying, if you didn't understand that. Postmodernism... The, the thinking that we live in now has basically lost confidence in this idea of revealed truth and also lost confidence actually in modernism, which is just science and reason. And he's basically now saying it's a free-for-all. Work it out how you will. There's no big story. There's no big meaning. Just try and 
enjoy life as best as you can. That's the prevailing system of thought. Now, I'm not advocating an unscientific pre-modernism, but I am advocating that God has the last word. And that I do believe it's really important we let the Lord rescue us from this postmodern deconstructionism where we're basically just, we've lost any sense of the big picture, a big story, a grand narrative where in which we can find meaning for our lives. We've thrown that away and basically now my life is the story. And I'll just try and enjoy it as much as I can and try and find meaning really from whatever source I, I choose. That really is a result of, I would say, a deep disillusionment with modernism, science and reason. See, science and reason, for all its amazing insights, doesn't ever bring to our soul the understanding of why we're here. It can never answer the why question. It's only what. People have understood that on an intuitive level and they're rejecting it in many, many ways. But instead of coming back to God, instead it's just like trying to find meaning within myself. And so when I speak about God having this grand purpose from start to finish and uh, uh, knowing you and choosing you before time's eternal and breaking into your life, you can think you must be joking. I'm not joking. You can know this God. And those of us who do know this God, I want to encourage us to, to resist this kind of postmodernism deconstruction. And for you guys, as you go where you're going, to take the big story with you and to give people powerful, thorough understanding of their place in the purposes of God. God has anointed you and has called you to do that. I want to finish with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Hey kids, great to have you back. Come on in. We'll do some praying in a minute. So, Ephesians 2, verse 10 says this. By grace you've, well, I'll start at verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith. I'll let you kids settle. I'll let you get happy, get comfy. Then we're going to read a really important scripture. And then we're going to get Hazel and Lena up on their feet. Right. Got future star there. Okay. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But listen. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where they are going and what they are going to do has been prepared beforehand for them to walk in. Do you, do you believe that? I mean, it's extraordinary. What they are about to walk into is what God has planned before times eternal. Didn't just plan to save them. He created good works in advance for them to do so that they may walk in them. And so when he broke into their lives as teenagers and saved them and put their home nation in their heart. And then when they agreed to come up here and church plant with us to learn about church planting, God is working out his purpose. Working out his purpose. And now they are coming to the next chapter of that purpose, which is a good work prepared in advance. This is, you are witnessing eternal things. It should make our hearts sing. It should fill us with confidence. It should make us absolutely robust in our support and prayer and delight as they go. And we're all very aware of the gap that they will leave. All of us are very, very aware of that. And you know, one thing I've realized over the years at Rev, where we've sent out a lot of people, is that no one person can ever replace another, right? We've learned that. We've learned that lesson. 
sending people as precious and as useful <laughs> as the sal is brings us back to dependence on God. We say, Jesus, you said you're going to build your church. And as we've sent them in faith, now, Lord, we believe that you're going to bring up many others through the ranks and bring others in so we can continue in the mighty work that God is doing with us. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm done. And I am now going to hand over to Hazia and to Lena, who want to say a few words. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to find a way of praying for you and sending you guys out. Okay?